as I was making preparations for family day and, and looking online, I couldn't help but notice there were so many little finger puppets, like life is better with friends. But the one I really like, the, the print's kind of small there, says, we are best friends. Always remember that. If you fall, I'll pick you up after I finish laughing. You know, life is, is full of a lot of choices and our choices impact others. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when we talk about the existence of God and the way he created us, we talk about being people of free will. I'd like for you to think about what that really means. We're people of free will. Every day we arise out of bed and we have the opportunity, but I would emphasize to you and I this morning, the responsibility to make a lot of decisions. That's what it means to have free will. We decide. And in that free will, we decide what to do. But here's why it's such a heavy responsibility. It not only affects our lives, our decisions affect the lives of people around us. The decisions you will make will either be a blessing to the people around you or it will not be a blessing to the people around you. We've all been that person. But the question is, what are you on an ongoing basis that are you the person that's not the blessing or the person that's the blessing? We all know someone that it just seems every time that they pass through our life, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a dear friend that we have, and they can just pass through a room, they can just pass through an hour of our life, and as they do, it just always leaves better. Like, they just seem to know what to say. They just seem to have eyes open to be able to do what needs to be done. It's like they live their life selflessly. It's like they are very aware of what would make your life better. You see, they've made choices. That's the choice that they have chosen in their life. And yet, on the other hand, we've all seen individuals, and again, it may be a coworker, it may be a family member, it may be a friend, that when they pass through the room, it always seems to get stirred up a little bit. It always seems to get a little bit anxious. It always seems to be a little bit drama-filled. And if you have something that you need done, they would be one of the last people that you would think about asking because you would never think about them being willing to do something for someone else. Why are they like that? Well, in one sense, we could just simply say it's the choice they made. They have chosen to live their life in that way. Like if we wanted to give extreme examples, think about the choices that Adolf Hitler made. Think about the choices that Mother Teresa made. Think about the choices of Jezebel or of Ruth. Diotrephes or Demetrius. Jesus, Judas. Your choices each day heavily impact other people. It's no way around it. It's impossible for you to live as an island to yourself in the society in which we live and really in the way in which God made us. And so today, maybe you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a sermon about us just making like a to-do list. And on that to-do list, we just say, make better choices. But really that never works. 
It doesn't work when we say, let's just address an action. It only works if we address the heart, the belief, the life that manifest that action. And that's the beauty about studying the Word of God. Is God never asks us, separate from who we are, to act like someone we're not. God would never say, hey, I know deep in your core you're a pretty rotten person, but what I'd like for you to do this week is just go and act like a good person. Isn't that wonderful? God never, ever asks you to act like a hypocrite. But what God does say is, I'd like to renew you. I would like to take that broken, selfish self and I'd like for you to see that you can be created anew. You don't have to live your life being selfish. We can become alive, a new creation, spiritual. The book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, that's half the book. The first three chapters tells us who we are in Christ Jesus. The last three chapters tells us how we live because of who we are. So if you study the last three chapters and say, that's what I want to start doing, you miss the point. The point is, that's what you do when this is who you are. Read with me, if you will, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And I I want to remind you slash tell you just a little bit about the 17th verse that paragraph right there if you have your Bibles open. You see, it's, it's kind of a negative paragraph because he says, hey, this is how the heathens live. And he's talking to people that are Christians here. And in essence, what he's saying is, he says, I see that you're flirting around, starting to live like the heathens again. And he says, that's not who you are. Don't live like that again. And, and so he says, they live by the futility of their mind. And so as you read deeper into that paragraph, what he's saying is, I want you to have the renewal of your mind. That's where change comes. When we really change our mind, then we're going to change our choices. And so when we read verse 24, notice this in the fourth chapter, verse 24, and that you put on the new man, which was, notice this phrase, created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I want you to put on this new man. Do away with old. Become someone new. Specs. Created according to God. Ask a cook, if you change the recipe, does it change the dish? Ask an engineer, if you change the specs, does it change the product? Ask an architect and and a carpenter, if you change the blueprints, does it change the structure? Absolutely. What happens if you change the person? Instead of them living by the flesh, they live according to God. Created according to God. How different would their life be? It's all the difference in the world, even in eternity. You know, when I I think about this, as I was studying this this week, I, I couldn't help but go back to a childhood memory. I remember when I, during a short few years of my life growing up that I wanted to rush home on Sunday evenings right after church because the $6 million man was coming on TV. And, uh, you know, uh, that was on one of the three network stations that we had uh, when we walked five miles to school barefoot in the snow every day. And, and, uh, and you know, it, it was really a, 
a really popular show in that time. And, and, you know, it was the idea that Steve Austin, this astronaut, had been in a horrible accident. And so as the show would come on, it would give, you know, as shows do today a lot of time, just a brief overview of where this story comes from. And so he's been in this terrible accident. And you hear this narr- narrator that says, Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. And then you hear the voice of an actor, except it doesn't show at this point his face. All you do is hear his voice, and it's Oscar Goldman is the character. And he is like this scientist, creator, that's going to take this man that's almost dead, and he is going to create something spectacular with him. And so off camera you hear him say, Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man, better than he was before, better, stronger, faster. And so they implant an eye and one arm and two legs. And, and you know, the show comes on and he's running in slow motion, which in that day and time was really cool. And, and, uh, and, and it would show the speed going up to 60 mile an hour. And, and uh, he had the bionic limbs, had the, the strength of a bulldozer. And his eye even had infrared capabilities. It was an amazing thing, but it, it was, it's really simple. Before all of these implants and before he became this new creature, he was limited just by human power. But once the $6 million investment was made, he could do things that were not capable before. We're going to study some things this morning that God is teaching us that we can become a blessing to the lives of others But on our own, we can't do this. This would only happen if we yielded our mind, our heart, and our life to God. And we'll find ourselves start doing things toward other people that we'll honestly think in our mind, I used to wouldn't have done that. I used to wouldn't have said that. I am really a new creation. The specs now are, I'm being created after God. I'm not being created after my selfish desires and my selfish life. With that in mind, I invite you back to the text that's been capable of read. Look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter. I confess to you that for many years, I read the text that is our text this morning. And I thought to myself many times, if you break each one of those verses down by themselves, they make a great lesson. But I don't completely understand why all these are tied together. At one glance, they look very random. But yet when you realize it's God telling us how much impact we can make upon others and what kind of impact that is to be and how important it is to the Spirit of God. How important is it to God that we be the right person to each other? And so join with me, if you will, in a a brief study here As we drop down now to Ephesians 4 and 25, Ephesians 4 and 25, and notice what he says here is going to change if our inner person is changed and being created by the specks of God. Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, did you notice that when you read that in your Bible, that let each one of you speak truth with his neighbors is in quotes? It's because it's quoting the Old Testament, Zechariah. And when we look at the eighth 
chapter in verse 16 and 17. And Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament. I don't have a slide for this, but this is, I think, very important for us to properly understand the text. When we talk about put away lying, we could talk about any form of deception and it ought to be put away. When Jesus came to this earth, he not only gave us truth, he said he was truth. And when he preached a sermon, he said, I want your yeses to be yes and your noes, noes. He wants us to tell the truth. So any application of truth is good application. But what I want you to see is that when we go back and see what is this quoted from, what he's dealing with is whether or not we're willing to give false oaths about one another. I'm going to read in Zechariah, the eighth chapter, in verse 16, he says, There are things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. In other words, you know, in that day and time, the city gates was the place that if you had a disagreement with a neighbor, with a friend, perhaps even with a family member, you'd go to the city gates and you'd let the elders, the men of wisdom, and it'd be a type of court session, if you would. And you would come up. But see, now here's the deal. Then, just like today, a judicial system is no better then whether or not you have honest judges and honest witnesses. Anytime it becomes common to have dishonest judges or dishonest witnesses, you have lost a very important fiber that you, are you ready for this? You owe to each other. You're going to hurt other people when you refuse to be honest with your oaths. And so he says, I want you to put away lying. And then notice the last phrase there. For you are members of one another. You belong to one another. You owe this to one another. You want to be a good, strong family? Practice truth. You want to be a good, strong congregation? Practice truth. You want to be a good, strong community? Practice truth. You are members of one another. You owe this to one another. Now go back. Before we were formed by God from a selfish nature. Hey, you know, I could lie right now. And that guy that I really don't like so much, that would really be rough on him. You know what? I'm not going to be an honest witness at this point. Now that we have become shaped by God, we have this responsibility to one another. I'm going to be an honest witness. The second thing that I'd like for you to see as we go back to our text here in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, I'd like for you to notice in verse 26, he speaks of anger and he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. There's a lot of things that can make us angry. And these two points are very good points of application for probably most things that make us angry. Don't sin and don't harbor it and linger over it. But because of the context here, if you read this entire, entire paragraph, and especially go down to 31 and 32, the anger that he seems to be talking about is when someone does something against us and whether or not we're going to be willing to have a spirit of forgiveness as we approach them. When someone harms us, are we going to, like a volcano, blow up? Or are we going to be under control and go to them and seek to work it out? Well, notice what his teaching is here. Not if we do it our way, because if we do it our way, we're probably, probably going to blow up. 
But what if we do it God's way, shaped by God? He would say, I want you to be angry, but do not sin. We can never allow someone else's wrongdoing or injury that they have brought into our life be an excuse for us to do wrong. Well, I tell you the reason I cursed them out is because of what they said to me. God's not going to look down and say, oh, well, then I understand why you cursed them out. That's fine. Oh, I tell you why I stabbed them in the back. Do you know what they did to me a year ago? God's never going to look down and say, oh, so you've harbored that, that anger for a year. Sure, it's justifiable. I, I'm glad that you stabbed them in the back. Doug McCormick told me just a few minutes ago, he said, you should have told him what my mama told me. I said, what's that? He said, I went and told my mama when I was a little boy that my brother hit me. And she said, did you hit him back? He said, yes. He says, well, you're just as bad as he is. <laughs> Someone else's wrong will never make our wrongful response right. That's a part of what the Lord is covering here when he says, Sure, you're going to be injured. Sure, you're going to be angry. It's just natural that you would be angry. But you can't use it as an excuse. And then he says, let me point out a second thing. You also can't harbor it over periods of time because it's going to become devastating to you. Get this worked out before the sun goes down. And we don't have time right now to develop this, but we probably sometime need to come back to this. I need this study. Maybe you need this study. Matthew 18 is not archaic in that it doesn't apply to us anymore. God still expects us when someone has created a pain or an offense or an injustice in our life, God still expects us to go to that individual. Now the question is, if you're going to go to him, are you going to go in a rage of anger that's ready to explode? Are you going to go to them under control? And as we go to them, are we going to be able to go to them because we truly want our relationship restored, but even their relationship with God restored as well as my relationship with God restored? A selfish person would say, you hurt me and I don't care what happens to you. A person shaped by God would say, you hurt me and I care about your soul, and I care about my soul. And I don't want anger right now. Are you listening? I don't want anger to literally cause me to not care about somebody's soul. But think about it. A rage of anger will convince us to not care about our own soul, and especially not about the soul of others. You, wonder, you ever wondered how dangerous anger is? That's a pretty good explanation right there of how dangerous anger is. When it can cause you not to care about your own soul, anger is very dangerous. And so he says, a God-shaped person, they're going to genuinely care for other people, even when anger has been stirred. I'd like for you to notice the third thing as we go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse 28, where he says, let him who stole still no longer... Rather, let him, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Maybe at first glance you say, this is simply a topic about don't steal. Definitely that's part of the details here, don't steal. But there is so much going on in this one verse as it pertains to how we interact with other people. Someone that's going to be willing to steal has two things off base. 
One, their moral compass is off base because they're about to take something that's not theirs. And if the moral compass was on base, there would be something in their consciousness that would be like a flag, like a dinging that would say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're about to take something that's not yours and that's just not right. So there ought to be a moral compass that says, warning, not right. But there's a second thing that ought to come into play. Every child of God. And that is, if I take something that doesn't belong to me, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm about to bring injury upon somebody else, and that's just not right. You remember how each of these, they're under this umbrella, if, if, if we think that's safe to do in this context of we're members of one another. Each of these are teachings about how we live one another. I, I talked to a, a thief one time. I'm, a lot of thieves, but I knew this guy was a thief and he was talking about being a thief. And, um, and he told me about several different things that he had stolen. Uh, and, and then he kind of looked at me like, like, oh, but I don't want you to misunderstand me. I mean, I've stolen a lot. And he's stolen high dollar, a lot of things. And he said, but I want you to know, I would never steal from individuals because that hurts individuals. I only steal from corporations and businesses that can afford it. And that was important to him that I understood that. You know, we have people right here in this congregation that work right here in this community with the control of merchandise. And many of you would probably be surprised how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are stolen right out of the stores in Mount Juliet. And for the guy that thinks it doesn't affect each other, every time you and I go into any store in this community, we pay more because of thieves. We pay a significant amount more because of thievery. You will never find a wrong that doesn't have a negative effect. And so he says, let me tell you what I want you to do if, if you're a thief. I want you to see not only the moral compass of, hey, stop stealing. I want you to see how you're treating other people. And what about if you went completely and swung the pendulum the other way? What if you said, you know what? I'm not going to go through life taking from people. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to go to work. And I'm going to work an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And you know what? I'm going to work just enough extra so that not only can I take care of my family, see the last part of that verse? When I see a person in need, I'm going to give to them. In other words, I'm going to stop taking from people and I'm going to provide for myself and even be a giver to people. Several years ago, I was studying about the Good Samaritan, and I don't remember if I read an article, uh, uh, someone else's sermon or a commentary. I don't remember at all where it was, but it was pretty powerful in the simplicity of the point that was made that is akin to this right here. Just a quick reminder, you know the story of the Good Samaritans, the man traveling along, and he ran into thieves. And they stole from him, but then they also beat him up and they left him half dead. A priest comes by and a Levite separately. They look upon him. 
but they won't help him and they pass on their way. And then a Samaritan comes along and looks and has compassion and he begins to care for the wounds and bandages him up, sets him on his animal, takes him to an inn and cares for him through the night, pays the innkeeper and then even pays again to say, take care of him for me and we'll settle the accounts when I come back. And the way you view your things are seen in the story I've just shared with you. Some people are like thieves that say, what you have is mine and I'm going to take it. Other people are like the priest and the Levite. What I have is mine and I'm going to keep it. And then there's just a few people in this world that's like the good Samaritan. And they actually live every day of their life saying, what I have can be yours and I will share it. And everybody in this room falls in one of those three categories. You're either a taker, a keeper, or a giver. And the Lord, through Paul, is writing about people whose lives should be renewed because they've been shaped by God. And what he's saying in this verse is, you used to be a taker, but you're going to not steal anymore. And you're going to work and you're going to provide so that you even have enough so that from now on, you're going to be a giver. What a wonderful way to live, to go through every day, not looking to see who you can take advantage of, but go through every day looking to see whom you can help along the way. Look with me, if you will, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter and 29, and he talks about our words. And he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but, the good, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, it's interesting here that he uses the word corrupt words and he says, don't let those come out. Think about what we offer to others. The word corrupt, if you're going to explain uh, food, it, it would be rotten. If you're going to explain metal, it would be a, a corrupted or a corroded metal. If you're going to explain wood, uh, it, it too would, would be a, a type of rottenness, a weakness. The, the debris is, is, is weak. And so we think about what about your words? What are unhealthy words? What are rotten words? What are corroded or corrupt words? Lying, gossip, slander, backbiting, profanity, off-color jokes, humor. It's just all kind of words that you make choices each day. You make choices. Is that, is that what I'm... I want to serve up to others. He says, but instead what I want you to do is I want you to see that you ought to share words that are good. And I want you to notice this text again. He says it's good for what? Not just edification. He could have said that. Good for edification. And that would have made a lot of sense. The word edifies to build up. But he says it's good for necessary edification. In other words, God is saying that we all need to be built up by each other and it's absolutely necessary that it takes place. God is saying that we need to see the responsibility that we have, that we need to go into the day and we need to build others up. 
I heard two guys sitting behind me yesterday on a, on a flight, so they were talking for a long time, and they were on a business trip, and, and I, I could tell you a lot they discussed. I was trying to tune it out and write the sermon. And, and, um, and, and they finally, toward the very end, the plane had landed. I, I listened to their conversations for over an hour, and finally they talked about a lot of evaluations that they do in their business. And finally one of them said, you know, it was only like this past year that I learned that really the guys that are higher up than us, they need encouragement too. And the guy kind of laughed. He said, never thought about that. He said, I always just need to encourage your peers and, and you need to encourage guys that are under you along the way. He said, I never thought about that the guys above us need encouraging. You don't know one person that does not need a word of encouragement from you. You do not know one person that does not need a word of encouragement from you. Necessary edification by good words. Now, I'd like for you to notice the choice that he, of the words that he used to close out this, that it may impart grace to the hearers. The word grace is generous gift. He says, the reason I want you to offer this necessary goodness to other people to edify them is because you have the opportunity to bring others a gift. And that word impart right there, some of your translations may actually say it. It means to minister to, which means to serve. He's literally saying every day, just like a waiter or a waitress, they come to your table and they serve you. He says, every day you have the opportunity to serve corrupt words or you serve up good words. You know, just, just a few weeks ago, Tracy and I were on vacation and we went to a restaurant and we ate a big meal. And you know, like when you've just had enough to eat. And about that time, here come the waiter up and he had a huge tray and he swings that tray and it has like six of the most delicious looking desserts. They were all like just beautiful. And you're thinking, I, I have nowhere to put that. And the next thing you know, you're saying, yeah, that one right there. And, 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 you know, he, he's walking away and, and Tracy even says, that's just not fair. Like, why do they do that? You know what he brought us? He served it right up. What are you going to serve up today? That's the exact language that he's using there. That you may serve up a generous gift to the hearers. Don't serve the corrupt gift. Serve the good words that are necessary for edification. Serve it up generously and give others that gift. So how important is this? We're just closing with this thought, but it's an important close. Look at the very next verse. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice the word and is the conjunction that ties this to say all the things I've been talking about is tied to what I'm about to say to you. What are you about to say? Don't make God sad. I don't know how that strikes you. I don't know if you really think about the fact that the way we treat other people affects God's emotions. But the Spirit of God will grieve 
when we mistreat others. When false oaths are given and anger eruptions take place, when taking instead of giving, when corrupt words are vomited out, it grieves the Spirit of God. Because we weren't saved, we weren't redeemed to go back to that same old selfish life that says, life's about me and I don't care about you. The only reason we're saved is because God cared about us and He teaches us to be like Him. Now I want you to care about others. And so it's free will. We can go through the day shaped by God, making choices that truly reflect that. I hope and pray that we will. We always close our sermons with the opportunity for people that want to give any kind of response to give that response. And if you know this morning you've come here saying, I want to be baptized into Christ, I want to be saved this morning, we want to give you the opportunity. Maybe this morning you come here and you say, I know that I haven't been living the way that I was redeemed to live. And I want to confess sin and pray forgiveness. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. Maybe you come here this morning and you say, I really don't know what I need to do. I just know I want to live closer to God. We would love to meet you where you are and just talk and study and see what God's will is for you. If there is any way that we can help you, our goal is to walk close to God and very thankful for the fact that He's patient with us because there's been far too many times that we've probably brought tears to God's eyes. But we're thankful for His grace and for His redemption that brings us hope. If we can help you, come.